Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 86, After Hours, with Diana Glyer and the contributors to A Compass for Deep Heaven. Well, welcome, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where David, Matt, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season thus far, we've eavesdropped on the conversation and correspondence of Screwtape, listened to his toast, and we have discussed the silver chair. And as the season draws to a close, we're interviewing different C.S. Lewis scholars. And today, we're talking with Dr. Diana Pavlet-Glyer, because today is the launch of her latest book, A Compass for Deep Heaven, Navigating the C.S. Lewis Ransom Trilogy. Now, as many of you will know, Professor Diana Glyer has appeared on our show a number of times before, but for those of you who have started listening, here's a little introduction. She is an award-winning writer who has spent more than 40 years combing through archives and studying old manuscripts of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and their friends. She's a leading expert on C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, and her book, The Company They Keep, changed the way we talk about these writers. Also, the follow-up to that book, um, not only about the writers, but about how to do what the Inklings did, a marvelous book called Bandersnatch, which I hope, Diana, you'll say a little bit more about. Her scholarship, her teaching, and her work as an artist all circle back to one common theme. Creativity thrives in community. And in 2016, she released Bandersnatch, a more popular and practical version of the company they keep. And as I said, she's talking to us about her new book, which is released today, A Compass for Deep Heaven, Navigating the C.S. Lewis Ransom Trilogy. Good to see you, Andrew. Glad to be here. We have also joining us a couple of other contributors to the book. Daniel Shea, who is an APU Honors English Master. Uh, He just completed his master's degree. His thesis was called A Path of Emulation, Entering the Literary Worldview of C.S. Lewis Through the American English Major. He lives in Southern California and found that his highlight of his undergraduate time was studying under Dr. Glyer. I can't imagine why. (laughs) We're also joined by Rachel Roller, who is a PhD student at Notre Dame in analytical chemistry. So a real underachiever. She uh, graduated from Azusa Pacific University in Honors Humanities as well as Chemistry while also playing the violin. She was five years old when her parents read her The Chronicles of Narnia, and her father read her the Ransom books when she was 10. And while it may have been a little young, she was fascinated and enchanted by that. And she's the envy of all of us because she had the chance to study abroad at Oxford at Wycliffe Hall under the De Jager Award and studied Lewis there. Welcome, everyone. Thanks. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having us. We're grateful that you would make some time. So tell me a little bit about how you came to write this book. Tell me, tell me, please tell me it was more than just a homework assignment. Tell me it was more than a class assignment. How did you come to contribute to Compass for Deep Heaven? I can start by talking a little bit just about the framework um, where we were able to, uh, to write this book together. So I am a professor in the Honors College at Azusa Pacific University in Southern California. And the Honors College 
allows students to study great books in a four-year integrated sequence. And so we uh, have courses that integrate literature, history, philosophy, and theology in a four-year sequence. And it's a great books program. A lot of times when people think about great works, great books, they understand that you're going fairly quickly through a lot of different texts And that certainly is the case with our undergrads. They are reading Plato in three weeks, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics in four weeks. They do Homer's Odyssey in just a few weeks as well. And so to counterbalance what happens in their freshman, sophomore, and junior year in terms of these wonderful overviews and this uh, highly interactive setting, we have a senior activity uh, where students choose just one text And they really go into great depth about it. So you think about the balance in our curriculum, three years of this wonderful overview of uh, great books, and then one year of really going in depth. We try to uh, master different texts through this three-year sequence, and then the fourth year really allow a text to master us. And the way that we do that, I think, is kind of interesting. So we Uh, get together in small groups, usually 12 to 15 students. We pick a text, we read it with great care, and then we set out to write a book about it. Um, And so for a full year, for a full 12-month period, I got to work with an extraordinary group of scholars reading and studying C.S. Lewis's uh, science fiction trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra and that hideous strength. After we'd studied it and read it and researched it a bit, we tried to find if there was a a need in the field of Lewis studies to learn something, something that maybe hadn't been done before, uh, something that we could actually contribute to the scholarly conversation. And uh, we realized, I, I would actually say the students realized that there were things after they had studied for a while that they said they wished they'd known before they read the books. That the more they understood about the things that Lewis took for granted, what we call the backdrops and building blocks, the clearer uh, Lewis's work became and the more enchanting and powerful it became too. And, and Andrew, that, that sort of fits my experience in talking with Lewis fans about the science fiction books. I mean, you've had this happen too. People will say, oh, I love the Screwtape Letters, or oh, I love the Chronicles of Narnia. And then you say, well, what about the science fiction books? And they say, um, well, uh, mm, I, I, I read them and uh felt like I didn't quite, I mean, they were fine, you know, but I felt like I didn't quite get it. I didn't quite get what Lewis was getting at. I felt like I missed a lot, frankly. And uh, my students had that same experience and they suggested that perhaps we could write a book together, working topic by topic that would give people some background that uh, as they were reading the science fiction books before they even sat down to read it, there might be some information, things that Lewis took for granted that we already understood that we could maybe shed some light on to help people really appreciate what's happening 
in those uh, in those great uh, books. So that's how the course was conceived of, and that's how we happened on this particular topic. Um, and maybe Rachel and Daniel can talk a little bit about their experience in joining that particular class. Yeah, I think that's a marvelous approach, especially because when Lewis wrote the books, they were kind of dismissed as these kind of potboiler, you know, this Don kind of tossing off something in uh, in his spare time. But part of the revolution of Michael Ward's wonderful work on the planets, um, I think, brings these book books much more into the center. But yeah, I'd love to hear about your experience. How was it for you, Rachel? I think the, the biggest surprise for me when I was joining this class, I mean, I knew that it wasn't going to be just an assignment, as you said, Andrew, but I don't think I realized quite what a journey it would be. One of Dr. Glyer's big mantras of the year was that we were not going to be writing as students, we were going to be writing as scholars. And so making that transition from, I know how to write a three-page paper and hand it to a professor and be done with it to really becoming an expert on a topic and writing something that you would want to share with the world. That was a huge process for all of us. And I know for me, um, I had to learn how to really work collaboratively and write iteratively. Throughout the Honors College, we have these things called rhetoric groups where we get together with a group of three or four people once a week to critique each other's writing and learn how to work together and bounce ideas off of each other. And those first three years of Honors College, I only brought polished drafts because I didn't want anyone to see what my messy writing looks like. <laughs> I was I was too scared to let anyone in on the process. And so, you know, I had help picking out typos, but I never really had the experience of bouncing ideas off of people and really writing in community. And so then, of course, you get to Dr. Glyer's class and Dr. Glyer is an expert on creativity, thriving in community. And we really lived that out my senior year. That's fantastic. Oh, I just love what you said about writing iteratively, right? Writing again and again and again. And Diana have, and I have talked for years about writing as badly as you can stand to in your first, you know, in your first few drafts. And and writing in community, I, I love that not only is she this expert who has written a book, but then she puts that into practice in a practical way. And how it sounds like this is in some ways was kind of a graduation into a real being a real adult scholar. You're not a student anymore. How was that experience for you, Daniel? Yeah, entering into that class, they call it Oxbridge, Oxbridge tutorials. I knew it wasn't gonna be just an assignment because quite frankly, anything related to Dr. Glyer is never just an assignment. It's going to have some larger purpose. It's going to, there's an opportunity for transformation. And I found that to be the case in this um, context as well. I think what was funny about the Oxbridge experience is that we were asked to write a, like a scholarly book, but at the same time, we wanted to make it pretty accessible. So we had to kind of learn that art of transposition of like researching deeply, getting into the weeds, but then bringing that back to who to the readers we were when we first stepped into class. And that was a hard thing to do. So um, it's funny because I, I think that I had to, the, the 
writing, the kind of writing that I read the most is the, is the kind of writing I almost have like least experience writing. It's like the, the accessible, like, um, pop, like more popular level, but thoughtful kind of work, you know, the, the one the type that we, that we could consume in greater swaths. Whereas we were trained throughout school to write as academically as we can. And so it was kind of a shift for me, um, to, to, find myself writing, trying to write in a different social register than the highest one I could reach. So that was, that was new and it was very helpful in a lot of ways. So I'm glad for the experience and, and I'm thankful that the journey continues on. Oh, that's fantastic. And our listeners had the pleasure of hearing from Dr. Stephen Beebe, whose new book, C.S. Lewis and the Craft of Communication, talks about the kind of five uh the five principles that made Lewis a great communicator. Yeah. Uh, he was holistic, intentional, uh, transpositional, evocative, audience centered. And yes, like you said, transpositional to take that big idea and then to put it into the kind of language and thinking. Um, and that was the thing that struck me about Dr. Glyer's book before we even met. Um, I had never, I'd read a ton of scholarly material, books and journals and whatever, and it's enough to gag you and put you to sleep at the same time. <laughs> and even reading her footnotes are just full of vibrant, good writing. And I just thought that it was, uh, it was I think that, that that book is a real revelation. And as I complete my own work on, on Till We Have Faces, that's kind of the guiding light. I want to, I don't want to write two books on Till We Have Faces. I want to write one, but I want to make it so personable um, as well as scholarly. And I think that she's a great leading light in that. Well, I want to get into the book and I want to get into the essays. And we've got a few different questions uh, that we sent along ahead. We don't have to get through them all. You can pick and choose your favorites. Um, but let's start with the quote of the week. And I may ask one of you to read that quote of the week. Is one of you willing to do that for us? I can do it. Great, Rachel. Thank you. Joy, in my technical sense, never darted from Mars or the moon. This was something coarser and stronger. The interest when the fit was upon me was ravenous, like a lust. This particular coarse strength I have come to accept as a mark that the interest which has it is psychological, not spiritual. Behind such a fierce tang there lurks, I suspect, a psychoanalytical explanation. I may perhaps add that my own planetary romances have been not so much the gratification of that fierce curiosity as its exorcism. The exorcism worked by reconciling it with or subjecting it to the other, the more elusive, the genuinely imaginative impulse. That the ordinary interest in science fiction is an affair for psychoanalysts is borne out by the fact that all who like it, like it thus ravenously, and equally by the fact that those who do not are often nauseated by it. The repulsion of the one sort has the same core strength as the fascinated interest of the other and is equally a telltale. Wonderful, a passage from Surprised by Joy. So Lewis is talking about him writing his own um, science fiction as a way of not so much satisfying his lust for this, these kinds of stories as it was an exorcism. And of course, Lewis read tawdry, you know, magazines and paperbacks. He read all of the, what he called science fiction that he could get his hands on. Um, how does that quote kind of, uh, how do you all grapple with that having spent a year kind of considering the space, the, the space books, the cosmic books? Andrew, I would observe that uh, one of the things that you see in 
the science fiction trilogy is the extent to which Lewis is sort of experimenting or sort of exploring his way to find even the plot line and the characters throughout uh, the three books. And I love that. I love that he starts writing before he kind of knows where he's going. Uh, he does that in a number of his fictional works, although his approach to nonfiction, as you know, is quite different. Mm -hmm. But there is this kind of exploration, and it is, I think, very common among writers to write something first and foremost, be, foremost because we ourselves are trying to sort something out or figure something out. And I think that when you see Ransom encountering um, his own fears and realizing some of his own expectations and then seeing those flipped, mm. it is Lewis himself exploring some of his uh, own, own basic and fundamental assumptions and then exploring wider and I would say more mythic possibilities. I, you know, I think that's marvelous. Um, and I mean, there's a, a limit to the extent that you can take this, but I uh, just last week had a, a wonderful chance to speak with the German scholar Norbert Feinendagen, uh, who's doing uh, a, a, an essay about Dimer and how Dimer and Surprise by Joy are matched pairs. And I have discussed at the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society how Lewis is kind of always trying to write his autobiography. And so I think that you can do too much and, and commit the personal heresy. But um, what do you all think? Do you think that there are real elements of Lewis kind of writing up his own story and kind of finding out what his story is by writing it um, in the Space Trilogy? For sure. I think um, a clear example of that might be in Paralandra writing a poem so, so much earlier called The Float Floating Islands. And having that idea in his head, kind of like the Narnian tales, having that like image of the fawn, and then working from that picture into something. And, and in his words, some he he knew he had the setting, the floating islands and the vegetation. Then something had to happen, you know. And so the plot kind of like comes from the setting rather than him having a sequence of events first and then piecing in a setting and all that sort of thing. I think that um, that like way of writing starting with an image and then building um from that the characters and the plot it it's reflected in i think the feeling the reading experience of say paralandra you really get immersed like the most dynamic thing about it perhaps is the setting is the location that he puts you on and then and then and then th there are arguments to be had that his characters might not be as psychologically you know um dynamic and they're, they're sometimes a little bit more static um but really what is, is driving it maybe is that location and and as um lewis says elsewhere about um good science fiction and um kind of science fiction that just uses an external location to play out something that we already have stories for here on earth like he he like in reflection of that and putting into practice his own view on that, he I feel like he really creates new experiences. That it's not just our world recast on Mars, but it's an expand we come back to Earth having an expanded vision of reality because it wasn't just a story about a different reality, but was an expansion or an enlargement of our capacity to see reality. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And for our listeners who haven't yet read the Space Trilogy or read Lewis's background, he was really more interested not in the mechanics of the science fiction or the geography of the place, although he, I think, really 
has fun with geography. And admittedly, he, you know, he's an imaginative person who to amuse himself while falling asleep would imagine landscapes and kind of create these, these different worlds. Um, but I think that he was mostly uh, interested in the spiritual ramifications of space tra travel. Where do you weigh in on that, Rachel? Um, how does that kind of play a role in the creation of, and, and, and was he successful in creating a spiritual world that was, that was cohesive in the, in the cosmic books? That's a great question. I mean, Lewis says that when he read David Lindsay's Voyage to Arcturus, he realized what science fiction was really good for. And it was that sort of spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. Because in Voyage to Arcturus, our main character goes on almost a pilgrim's progress, except Gnostic, meeting all of these characters and learning new ideas and really having a spiritual awakening. And you find a lot of parallels with that in the Cosmic Trilogy. Uh, it's obviously not Gnostic, it's steeped in Christianity, but Lewis took that concept of let's take both our main character and our readers on a journey of spiritual awakening by taking them somewhere in the heavens. No, I think that that's exactly right. Um, what do you make, Diana, of the fact that this is his first fictive effort? Where do we see both strengths and weaknesses in, in what he's doing in terms of this project that he has? What do you make of that? Uh, I think that even though it is his first novel, uh, he is so steeped in the science fiction tradition. One of the chapters in our book talks about what he understood and what he thought about in terms of classic science fiction and how much of it he had read, how familiar he was with it. So he's using all of this referential uh, material that deals with science fiction that you know the in the HG Wells kind of tradition. And yet he is adding his own value system to it and exploring that in such, I think, a powerful way. Uh, I, I have a hard time thinking about weaknesses in Out of the Silent Planet, and that's because Out of the Silent Planet was the first C.S. Lewis book that I ever read. Oh, wow. And so this was my introduction to Lewis's way of thinking. And in preparation for our conversation this morning, I actually reread um, Out of the Silent Planet. I was planning to sort of look at it. You know how you do? <laughs> You're just going to read a few pages and maybe kind of refresh your memory, some of the specifics. And pretty soon, an hour and a half is gone by and you've just fallen into the book. And so while it may be a bit clumsy, remember that Tolkien, uh, in reading a manuscript of this, said that the prose was a little creaky hmm. uh, and had some criticisms of some of the specifics, which Lewis addressed not by rewriting the book, but by tacking on an afterword in which, <laughs> which he fills in some of the details, right? I think that there is so much magic here if we allow ourselves like Ransom to go on an adventure mm. and to really experience with him uh, this sub-created world, which I find very powerful. I've been seeing uh, parallels as I've been thinking about Out of the Silent Planet with The Hobbit, right? Mm. You have rather professorial, mm -hmm. timid, uh, stay-at-home sort of fellow who gets... Um, kind of like kidnapped almost uh, and, and then taken on an adventure. And I see in both of them that 
strangeness that in both the case of The Hobbit and uh, the Ransom series, the main character is a grown-up, and yet there's a kind of coming of age as if there is this significant enlargement of their being as a result of mm-hmm. being um, inadvertently, unexpectedly, against their better judgment, drawn into adventures. <laughs> That's fantastic. And that's exactly what's happening here. This is incredible. So in the 1920s, in the in 1926, 27, Lewis and Tolkien begin meeting together in the coal biters. These are uh, uh, not only peers, but also a few of their professors, um, some of their leading lights, such as C.T. Onions and George Gordon. Um, and they're reading these old Norse myths um, together and translating them in Tolkien's rooms. Through this kind of interest in myth, Tolkien rises from the second rank of friends to the first rank of friends and is able to speak into Lewis's life about mythology and its meaning, which helps Lewis over his last hurdle about Jesus Christ. So it's a direct uh, help for his conversion. And then they begin writing new myth in Lewis's rooms around Lewis rather than reading old myth in Tolkien's rooms around Tolkien. And it's a and and all of a sudden the professors, their, you know, their teachers, their mentors have disappeared. And it's just the cog hills and the barfields and all the rest. And so I think that there's that kind of graduation happening in their own lives. And then they begin writing together and the Hobbit is getting written, the Out of the Silent Planet is getting written within the context of the Inklings. And so, yeah, this is kind of their their first uh, transitional moment. And then I find it incredibly ironic that to some degree that this is exactly what you all are doing in the book. It's your last project as you graduate from college. But you are, like you said, Rachel, not writing a not writing a, a term paper, but write, making a scholarly contribution. And so, I really do think that this is kind of this great, uh, this this great coming of age, um, and this kind of innocence, uh, innocence preserved, if you will, mm. um, in what's going on. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh, we could we could go on for hours about all of this. Rachel, you wrote a, a chapter about science and scientism, and I found your distinctions really clear. Daniel, you talked, you wrote a couple of chapters about Arthur and Merlin, and I think that this is one of the best Merlins ever portrayed, um, ancient or, or modern. And so I'd love to hear from either of you about your essays, what inspired you, um, and uh, you know, just a, a, a quick little bit about that so that we can kind of lean into some of the questions that you, you all raise. Mm-hmm. So in terms of what really inspired me to write my chapter, I mean, I am a chemist. And so this is a science fiction trilogy and therefore has a lot of science in it. But there's also a huge misconception when people read the science fiction trilogy that it is flagrantly anti-science, that all of the villains are scientists and that Lewis is just this literature don bashing technology and trying to make us go back to the dark ages. And I really didn't see that side of the trilogy when I read it, because for one thing, there are so many good scientists in this trilogy. I mean, you have the Sorns on Malacandra running around with telescopes and apparatus for delivering oxygen. You have Ransom making notes on the flora and fauna and the variations in gravity and even taking the temperature of a cross. You have Dr. Humphrey in 
Paralandra, examining a flower from Paralandra, quote, with the hands and eyes of a scientist. Oh, there you go. You have Grace Ironwood in That Hideous Strength, who is a medical doctor, and probably my favorite character, who is often overlooked in That Hideous Strength, is William Hingis. And he is the only scientist at the NICE who has an international reputation. He's described as being friends with De Bruyne, who, um, if anyone's familiar with De Bruyne wavelength and that side quantum mechanics, he's a physical chemist and he's actually murdered because he decides to leave the NICE because he doesn't like their agenda. Mm -hmm. um, he says at one point, if he found chemistry beginning to fit in with all of this stuff that the NICE is doing, he'd let chemistry go to the devil and take up gardening again. So when I read the trilogy, I really saw all of these good scientists. And yes, Lewis makes a lot of warnings about scientism, this perversion of science. He actually calls it a caricature of the true sciences in one place. Right. I wanted I, I want to hear more about that because in Four Loves, Lewis says that the challenge of the critical mind is not to praise or dispraise, but define and describe. And so just in a couple of sentences, can you, can you show us, can you tell us what scientism versus science is and the, and the kind of the, the, the draw a line under kind of the point that Lewis is trying to make about those two things? I, I, I love that in your essay. Certainly. So Lewis says that the, the physical sciences, so things like biology, chemistry, physics, are good and innocent of themselves. Um, in Screwtape Letters, Screwtape actually encourages his nephew not to let people get into the real sciences because it will show them how to have faith in things they can't see. Um, so Lewis likes science. Science is great. But then there's this thing called scientism. And this is um, what Lewis calls the myth that follows in the wake of science. It's science as a worldview, science as a religion almost. It's science as the only way to truth, and it undermines the idea of truth. It ultimately, as he describes in The Abolition of Man, leads to dehumanizing people. Uh, is, is that a little bit like when, you know, Dr. Francis Collins argues with, um, you know, Hitchens or, or whoever, um, is some of the atheistic science lagging into scientism? Um, and it, uh, is that a component of some of those debates between uh, believers and non-believers in the sciences? I certainly think there there is some scientism that you see in that side of the scientific community. Uh, I think Lewis says, you know, make sure that they're committed to progress, but don't ask, don't let them ask themselves what they're progressing towards, mm -hmm. right? And I love that you brought up Screw Tape um, because, of course, we're finishing that book, and and he is a kind of full throated in support of reading the hard sciences because they um, allow us to think of uh, realities that we cannot see or feel. So uh, marvelous. I, I, yeah. Well, listeners, you have to buy the book and read her whole essay. Um, and we could spend the rest of the hour on that. But Daniel talked about Merlin and Arthur, and I want to pitch it over to you and hear what you, uh, what you had to say. How does the, and that's the marvelous thing about a really good Lewis book. Um, 
and about Lewis as a writer. You remember what Barfield said that what he thought about everything is secretly present in what he wrote about anything. And so if a theme is true in Lewis, it's often true in everything that he wrote. And that's, I think, what makes him in some ways such a cohesive writer. Mm -hmm. Is that what you experienced, Diana? Uh, absolutely. I think that you do see uh, echoes of many, many different works in the science fiction books. And there certainly are echoes of the screw tape letters, particularly in the nature of the diabolical. <laughs> yes. Well, and I think it's not by accident that Lewis, and I'm a big chronology guy, you have to find out what he's reading and writing at the same time. Um, and so he's reading and he's writing about, he's writing Preface to Paradise Lost about the devil. He's writing the screw tape letters. He's writing about evil in mere Christianity. And he's writing Paralandra and Out of the Silent Planet, but, you know, Paralandra all around the same time. Um, and I think that that's part of why you hear this kind of uh, view of evil from, it's kind of like his essay variation in Shakespeare and others. He's giving lots of different points of view, but he's also bowled over by Charles Williams, whose recent entry to the Inklings uh, has really uh, impressed Lewis. And they, I think, begin working around this time on the Arthur poems. Is that right, Diana? Yeah, I think so. I love that you, um, you point out the Milton connection, though, because I think that that is particularly valuable, right? So science fiction can perhaps most simply be understood as an exploration of what if. And so Paralandra is a response through a novel to Milton, uh, Paradise Lost. What if paradise wasn't lost? What if there was a way to stand against the evil and prevail? What would a planet like that be like? And uh, I think that that is part of the excitement of reading Paralandra. Uh, that's great. Well, and I love those uh, Miltonic connections. Um, but as I as I alluded to, Daniel, I'd love to hear more about Arthur. And I think that that's kind of the undiscovered country a lot in a lot of ways is Lewis's Arthurian work, and um, and and his work with Charles Williams, even though it can, it can be a little inscrutable. Um, tell us more about that, and I'd love to hear more about Merlin. Yeah, for sure. I did want to comment um, on on uh, respond to one of something you said just like a minute ago regarding like Barfield's statement about like, you know, things are present in all of his works when they're in any of his works. And that's like a, yeah, it's a very like, like a famous observation. And I was trying to just pause, like think through that. Why is that the case? And what that's, I think what makes his scholarship so fun is that the connections are all over the place. So it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's like, um, you know, hypertext, they're all linked. It's like, it feels like a network um, of sorts. And I was thinking through that and, and, Correct me if I'm wrong, um, Dr. Glyer, but from like a compositionist perspective, but it seems to me like he's an internal processor, right? And like Tolkien, he's drafting things out constantly. He, you know, if one new element into a story, he goes back to the beginning and writes a new draft. Whereas Lewis, he generally, you know, keeps about 85% of his first draft um, the same to, to publication, right? And some, it's, and usually when he changes things, it's, it's word choice and this sort of thing, not not whole um, cuts and stuff like that. Um, but it seems to me that like Lewis on like a larger scale, I think because he's so fluent on the sentence and paragraph level that he could, the moment he has an idea, he could express it in a compelling way, almost a publishable way that like in, 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 some, in some fashion, the different genres that he's writing in are almost like 
different drafts of a, of one idea. Mm-hmm. It's just that he could produce. He could it, it it escalates. It accelerates his like from from germination to to product really fast. And and in a way, his different the books his books in different genres uh, that constellate around one idea are loosely analogous, maybe to Tolkien's multiple drafts of the same work in the in that one genre. Mm, wow. No, I think that there's a lot of merit to that. And um, and I love that idea, especially as Lewis tries different genres for the same for the same idea. Like with Tilia Faces, he tried two or three different, you know, attempts. And in his autobiography, one can argue that everything from Dimer all the way through A Grief Observed are spiritual autobiography. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's trying all of those, all of those different things on a meta level, trying to fit it all together and and make it express. But then as uh, I'm sure uh, Diana related to you in your class, um, I spent some time with Walter Hooper who talked about uh, Lewis's secretary. And he said that Lewis's compositional process was using a dip pen. And while he was dipping, he would think about the next five or six words. And then while he was writing, he would mouth them aloud under his breath as he was writing them. And so it's, he's got this kind of universal, but then, but he, he, universal view that he's trying to accomplish, but then he says, right for the ear, not for the eye. And with the exception of that, the surprise by joy passage, which we, which we struggled over. And I'm not sure if that's his most lyrical book, but he often writes for the ear so that it sounds good as well as, encapsulates all of that so yeah no i think that we're right in the middle of the target yeah yeah and as barfield says i think it's located in um c.s lewis speaker and teacher carolyn keith's little collection mm-hmm. um i think it's barfield talking about lewis as a conversationalist mm-hmm. and how he was perhaps the most like fluent person he's ever encountered you know barfield on on lewis and how lewis was able to just put the sentences together at just like a rapid rate and in a, in a compelling and coherent way. And so I think, yeah, Lewis at that level is just unparalleled. Um, but yeah, go for it. I no, I want to hear about Merlin, but I would have loved to hear Lewis freestyle. I would have loved <laughs> to hear Lewis rap. I mean, the man could have killed the man <laughs> had flow. I mean, I, I think that he could have dropped some bars. Yeah, um, yeah, him versus Lin Manuel Miranda would have been. Bring a- it, he bring, put him up against Eminem. I, I, <laughs> I like, I like his chances. So, That's how did you get interested in the Merlin stuff? And, um, and yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah, I think that that's one of the most puzzling parts of that hideous strength, and it comes in really early. You know, it it, it kind of like escalates and, and culminates towards the end in a very Arthurian way, but it's present right from the beginning of the conversations, the dimbles. So, um, Arthurian legend. Um, I guess like an overarching question might be, you know, why did he incorporate Arthurian legend? What was his intentions? And and that's how I'm going to try to approach it. My short description of it. Um, and I think it could be approached on another, a number of levels, of course. Um, first, I think Lewis loved the, the Arthurian legends personally. Um, his first exposure to them through A Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain was not his favorite, but he, that love was really um, deepened when he got into deeper material such as Mallory in his teenage years. Um, he studied Arthurian medieval texts professionally, Monmouth, Bede, Nennius, um, Lyman, Mallory, 
uh, Christian de Troyes, Weiss, the Vulgate cycle. He was probably, he's very familiar with um, these, some of these more than others, perhaps like um, the brute. Um, but he was, he, he was steeped in it professionally, personally, and from a young age. So that's, that's one reason I think is just his personal love for it. He was surrounded by people. This is second. He was surrounded by people who loved the Arthurian legends. Um, each, a lot of the major inklings wrote Arthurian, um, works, um, some less, less known Barfield, the quest of the Sangreal, Lewis, of course, THS, but also a longer narrative poem called Lancelot and Tolkien, the fall of Arthur. And most importantly, and most significantly, and most copiously is Williams, um, mm -hmm. Talies and Logris, his, so his Arthurian poems. Um, but he also was the only inkling to really attempt a nonfiction work on mm. King Arthur, the figure of Arthur, which he never finished, which mm -hmm. Lewis, as a sort of tribute to him, edited and published posthumously as the Arthurian torso. Mm. And I think that a lot of William's ideas, particularly about um, a William's vision of Logris, mm -hmm. the power and the spiritual significance of the grail, they're all very much a part of that hideous strength. Some even call that hideous strength uh, the, the Williams novel written by Lewis or something along those lines because it bears his uh, imprint so much. And then, and then thirdly, I think, and most interestingly, perhaps, um, perhaps Lewis wanted, had to bring in the Arthurian legends because he wanted to conjure to mind the spiritual heritage of Britain and the Arthurian legends is, if we were to use the phrase of um, Dimble later on in um, THS, Britain's haunting that the Arthurian legends were the pictures that the landlord, if we were going to riff off of the Pilgrim's Regress and history, the hermit, the, the pictures that the landlord was sending to these people to woo them back to himself. And in a way, if he's going to incorporate the spiritual heritage of Britain, he was almost backed into the Arthurian legends because there's so much a feature of that, that um, island's spiritual literary expression of a, a spiritual, like almost like a, dispensation of sort. Um, and it also brings to mind these systems of imagery. I think the Arthurian legends are a kind of system of imagery mm -hmm. that, and Lewis speaks of this in his preface to the later publication of Dimer, um, like systems of imagery that express a, like a very um, elusive longing, you know, and the imagery of course can become idolatrous and it could break the heart of their worshipers, but it could also be used as the signposts that they are. And so I think that that's what he's doing. He's really reappropriating this system of imagery into embedding it into his cosmos and that hideous strength. But um, definitely many layers. And I think there are generally four elements that we could really seize upon. And the ones that I focus on my, in my chapter are on um, Merlin, Ransom as Pendragon and Fisher King, Logris and Avalon. Yeah. And I think that, uh, it, I think that, yeah, I, we could spend all day on that as well. Uh, for our listeners who aren't really certain about what's going on, Logers is kind of the, the, the mythic England. Yes. Britain is the historical England and Logers is the kind of mythic undercurrent that's going on. And, um, and you see those things kind of seeping through. Yes. In Lewis's poetry, you see, um, I think Reepicheep. Uh, as this marvelous kind of uh, Arthurian knight. Hmm. Um, and then maybe even, and I'm sure I got this idea from somewhere else. I couldn't be this smart. Ransom is a kind of Galahad, 
right? Saving the grail of the virgin in Paralandra, right? He's protecting this, you know, and there's the association with the, the grail and the Virgin Mary. Um, and Galahad is this kind of servant of, 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 of innocence and purity. So you got that stuff coming all over the place. And then, of course, Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, and I'm overstating, which is my, my spiritual gift, um, <laughs> to kind of slot between Troy, the end of the Trojan War, and the beginning of the Arthurian tales, right? He's writing a mythology for England. Um, because a lot of the Arthurian stuff, you know, the, the Gawain and stuff, they pick up from Troy, but there isn't that history in between. So Tolkien in some ways is saying, okay, maybe Aragorn is in on, on some level the first the first kind of Arthurian type figure. Um, That's fascinating, yeah. And then it, you know, picks up from there. How far off am I, Diana? Oh, uh, maybe not so much. Uh, I want to circle back, <laughs> though, and... Uh, and challenge Daniel to get even more specific. So um, I'm thinking about the role of Merlin and how yes. important he is. And a lot of times it's actually one of the most common questions that I'm asked when people find out that I study C.S. Lewis. And they they put it this way. They say, what in the world is Merlin doing in that book? And how would you answer that question? What is he doing there? Uh, we have He's saving story. it. <laughs> Well, not uh, people say that what he's doing is smashing it to bits, but that's a different kind of thing. You know, it, um, he's he just seems very out of place in some ways. And while you point out, I think wisely that he's there, in essence, from the beginning, it feels jarring. Mm. And I think that Lewis is skillful enough that that sense of bewilderment, that jarring sense of what in the world is he doing here is on purpose in some ways. Um, can you help us understand Merlin's role and why it's so important that he'd be there in that book? Yeah, that is, a, I think, a common question is like, why, what is Merlin doing in here? And I don't remember too much about what Merlin is. So, you know, how is this? Yeah, it, it's just like a confusing element, very disorienting at times. I think that Merlin can't be considered in isolation in that hideous strength in terms of the Arthurian elements. Really, the like I think it really ties back to Ransom as Pendragon. Pendragon meaning chief dragon, the mantle given to King Arthur and Arthur's father, Uther Pendragon, which is a title that according to Monmouth traces all the way back to Aeneas of Troy. So it's like it's 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 part of it's embedded in this really large, large what's the word that I'm looking for? Kind of like diachronic, like conception of universal Western European history. And I think that that was a preoccupation at that time of like German philologists too. So, I mean, it was just kind of like embedded in like different, they're asking different questions altogether perhaps at that time. But back to Merlin, I think that Merlin is an aide to Arthur, you know, in the legends. Mm -hmm. And so there being, you know, the Pendragon, um, that, that is Ransom being the kind of like Arthur, you know, it, it makes a way for there to be a Merlin. It also makes a way for there to be a Logris. That is a true spiritual remnant in Britain that still submits to the, the leadership of the Pendragon. So like, I think Merlin functions in the context of Arthurian elements, but I think um, more um, on another level, Merlin is kind of like the anti-head, you know, the disembodied head of the NICE. And I think like um, he's the he's the opposite extreme in the words of Dimble, the opposite extreme. Um, I think a really a quote that clarifies it a lot 
um, is from that hideous strength. And uh, he says, uh, this is Dimble uh, talking about Merlin. He's at the opposite extreme. He is the last vestige of an old order in which matter and spirit were, from our modern point of view, confused. For him, every operation on nature is a kind of personal contact, like coaxing a child or stroking one's horse. And if we were to take like a Barfieldian approach, we would maybe we would call that maybe original participation or something. His consciousness is kind of embedded in the natural mythos around him. Um, so he is, uh, he functions that way. I think we're, we do a good job in science fiction and in like, you know, Marvel and stuff like that to draw out the implications of our scientific and scientistic at times assumptions or, 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 you know, um, dispositions, but we have a hard time imagining what it would be like to draw it the other way back into time and experience a unity of sorts between, you know, us and our consciousness and, and matter. And Merlin is shocking because we don't see, we're not like familiar, acquainted with that kind of depiction of people and of consciousness, but I think he's there to uh, counterbalance the NIC in a lot of ways. Oh my gosh. Oh, it's, I think about um, another another scene that a lot of people have trouble with in that hideous strength, right? And that's the animal stampede at the end, the animals rising up and taking their revenge in a way. And I, I can't help thinking about the, the scripture that says that if the people were silent, the rocks themselves would cry out. And I guess that that's maybe one of the contexts in which I think Merlin is important, that reality itself is incarnate in Merlin, the rocks themselves cry out. Merlin himself, the earth, Britain itself, right? Logos itself, uh, all of these things embodied, incarnate in Merlin, cry out uh, at the injustice that's being um, perpetrated against the earth itself, right? Through the NICE. And uh, they're given voice. And I, I love many of the descriptions of Merlin as this sort of shaggy, mossy, <laughs> right, earth spirit uh, in a way. And uh, I think that that is important. It's not just the animals, but it is the earth itself in some way, aiding the counter-rebellion and restoring what needs to happen, what should things as they should be. I just think Merlin as this combination of Bombadil and Radagast. <laughs> And a little bit of Malcolm Geith. Yeah. And and the the kind of return of the of Gandalf the White. But Rachel, I really wanted to to kind of pitch it to you because uh, what Daniel was saying um about I think that maybe Merlin in some ways embodies what Lewis means by true science um and it, what he's getting at in the discarded image, right? Because a magician is a scientist in the in that period. And so I mean, I wonder if maybe uh, Lewis is imagining Merlin as a more correct scientist than what you see in the nice or, you know, anywhere, any foothold that you want to get in here. I'd love to love to hear you weigh in. Yeah, I definitely agree because there's one part in that hideous strength where it said that Merlin represents what we have to get back to in some different way. So Lewis isn't telling us to actually go back to the Dark Ages and be magicians, but he is saying that there's something we need to take from people like Merlin. And a lot of that is that relational respect for nature. Um, in The Abolition of Man, Lewis talks about a new natural philosophy 
that he calls it a regenerate science. And it's very much what we see in Merlin. Um, Lewis says that when the regenerate science explained, it would not explain things away. And when it spoke parts, it would remember the whole. And when it was studying the it, it would not lose what Martin Buber calls the thou situation. So that whole it and thou distinction, when you see something as an it, it is an object and you can do whatever you want to it. That's what we see the NICE doing with the animals that turn on them at the end. Um, they're, they're simply objects to be abused at will. Um, that's also how the NICE treats the earth. You see horrible pollution of the river and just raising ragwood and, and um, this wholesale exploitation of nature. Mm -hmm. And so it makes perfect sense when at the end of that hideous strength, the earth itself rises up and you see landslides and earthquakes and the earth opening up to swallow people. Um, mm -hmm. And Merlin really is a counterbalance to that, that mm -hmm. he still has that relational view of nature. He wants to, when he first arrives, go out in the hills and fields and renew old acquaintance. Um, the, the rules of his order forbid him from using an edged tool on any living thing. Mm -hmm. So we're not necessarily supposed to see a spirit in every tree or have some weird sort of like new age pagan thing with the earth. But I think Lewis is calling us to see the natural world as not purely a natural object, as something that we should have respect for. No question. See that in his in uh, Lewis's treatment of people throughout the uh, science fiction trilogy as well, right? So you think about the the boy at the beginning that the scientists are trying to you know shove into the spaceship and take off to Mars. That objectivization, um, victimization too of individuals, as opposed to the value of each individual. So we often talk about reading the abolition of man in parallel with that hideous strength, but I think about the value of reading the weight of glory in companionship with these books in which Lewis just uh, illuminates so much an understanding of the importance and the value of each individual soul. Mm. Well, and I love too what you said, Rachel, about um, paganism because uh, having been raised in you know for some time in an evangelical tradition, um, we often equate the word pagan with the word hedon hedonist, right? Like he's a real pagan, which means he's out partying on Friday nights. But a pagan, in Lewis's sense, and in the sense of the word, is one who believes in many gods. And Lewis called himself around this time a converted pagan in a land of apostate Puritans, right? And so he doesn't see paganism as an enemy. In fact, if Christianity isn't in some sense the fulfillment of paganism, if Christ isn't, as Mal Malcolm Guide has famously said, if Christ isn't the green man, you know, I think that we're, the, that we're missing the point. Uh, so much here. So at the end of each episode, we have done a little kind of Screwtapian do's and don'ts. And we've also done a section called Unscrewing Screwtape. How can we take Screwtape's bad advice and make it good? 
Um, so I'm going to ask each of you for just one of, uh, of either of those. What's a great takeaway? What's a great blessing? What will help our listeners as they trudge through their lives and screw tape starts, you know, jumping all over them in the middle of their weeks next week? What, uh, what have you learned? What has been helpful to you? What has Lewis really granted you as a gift um, about the space trilogy that can help us in our practical discipleship? And as I keep coming back to, how can this help us love God? and love our neighbor more or better understand the love of God? What, what practical takeaways do you have? And I'll just open that up to anybody who wants to jump in first. I think one of the biggest gifts that Lewis gives me through the Space Trilogy is his very poignant portrayals of good and evil. I mean, the, the unmanned ripping apart the frogs is probably the chillingest evil I have ever heard. But then the Blessed Be He section, the great dance at the end of Paralandra is probably the best depiction of goodness that I have ever seen. Um, And so just that reminder of good and evil exist, and we can choose which side we are on. Sure. And I would say practically, uh, listeners, pull out Paralandra and go to the end of it and read the Blessed Bees aloud. Read it as as a group, as a liturgy. Do it in a room and read those aloud. I've done that before. It's incredibly powerful. Great. Thank you. Daniel, how about you? Um, if you don't mind an answer to this question, um, I just want to read the this last paragraph of one of the sections from one of my chapters, and it's simply this. At the end of the novel, Ransom reveals the secret to St. Anne's success and a secret to spiritual success in general. He says that they, that they had fulfilled what was asked of them, that they had obeyed and waited, quote. It is a hard lesson, especially when one's enemies are like the NICE, which is constantly moving, taking over colleges, starting riots, and obtaining emergency powers from the government, sitting patiently and waiting like a fisher king in the rushing waters of modern society is no easy task. But in some circumstances, that might just be exactly what is required. Hmm. Obey, wait, the, 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 the gods are descending upon our heads. Yeah. What about you, Diana? Yeah, I love the way that Ransom models for us what happens in our life or what can happen in our life when we find ourselves in circumstances that are very different from what we planned. Um, Maybe listeners can think about the last 14 months or so during the restrictions of the pandemic and say that I didn't sign up for this. I didn't expect things to look like this. Uh, Ransom finds that he's on an adventure that he didn't sign up for. And I love it that as he's living among the cross, what he what he sees there, he experiences because he adopts the, the heart of a, of a student, of a learner, of an observer. And I think that so much as we try to negotiate our uh, difficulties rather than fighting them or running away from them or whining about them and complaining, what happens in our heart when we say, I'm going to observe, I'm going to engage I'm going to ask great questions. I'm going to learn all our all I can. And what Ransom discovers there is not only the way that he grows as an individual, but the extent to which he finds true friendship. Mm. I think that that um, that attitude of of looking for true friendship is a great a springboard to our next uh, our next book next year. Um, I think that friendship that that incredible and neglected love is at the core of so much of what's going on. And I would, uh, I would encourage you all to look for and to love your friends well. 
Well, uh, what a rich hour, uh, maybe a little bit more. Thank you for, uh, for hanging in there with us. Thank you, especially to our guests, uh, Rachel Roller and Daniel Shea and, and Diana Pavlak-Glyer. Um, as we wrap up, uh, Dr. Glyer, thank you so much for coming uh, again onto Pints with Jack and for your ongoing friendship, both with me and with all of us. Um, where can listeners go to find out today, release day, uh, more about you and to pick up a copy of your fantastic book, which I recommend really wholeheartedly, A Compass for Deep Heaven, Navigating the C.S. Lewis Ransom Trilogy. There's information about A Compass for Deep Heaven on Twitter. If you look for us, you'll see us on Facebook. Uh, we do have a website, cslewiscompass.com. You can look at my Facebook page and you'll see some postings too related to the book. I hope that people will pick this book up and remember that it's a little different than a lot of books we think of when we think of literary criticism. So what our team has tried to do is not so much read the Space Trilogy and then just do literary analysis of the book. What we kept asking ourselves as we wrote A Compass for Deep Heaven is what do we wish we had known before we read this so that we knew what we were getting into and we had some background and some of these building blocks that Lewis takes for granted. I think C.S. Lewis is always paying us an incredible, perhaps intolerable compliments <laughs> in assuming that we know a lot about Arthurian legend and science and uh, science fiction and world wars and all of these different topics. He, he thinks we know a lot more than we do. And so it's helpful for us to sort of brush up in our understanding of these things. And it just helps us to read and to sort of catch some of those things he's pitching at us throughout the story. And that's what A Compass for Deep Heaven is designed for. Very accessible, very readable. And I think it'll do a lot of good for a lot of people because it'll help them to really enjoy and appreciate all that's happening in these books. Available on Amazon. Available on Amazon. We'll, of course, have a link uh, to that where folks can can find that. As we're wrapping up, we had put out on social media today um, uh, just a, a plea for what kinds of questions might you have about this? What should we ask? And many of them have been covered. And then, Diana, you'll remember the marvelous Chalabi family, the Egyptians from Australia. And Joy just now weighed in asking about Milton. Um, uh, and so, uh, Joy, we got you covered. So, well, thank you, listeners, and thank you so much to our guests, uh, Rachel Roller, Daniel Shea, Diana Glyer, and a special thanks to our Patreon supporters, uh, especially our top-tier supporters on Patreon. I uh, want to remind you to uh, leave us iTunes reviews. We are also now on Audible. Join us on Facebook, Twitter. Join us on Instagram, and join us now on MySpace. That's right, Pints with Jack has got a MySpace page. Mostly though, thank you to, uh, to all of those who have taken some time to think about Deep Heaven. And I pray that Deep Heaven comes in and falls upon all of our heads and that we would be mindful to look up and uh, find our help coming from the Lord on high. So we bless you for that. And we ask you listeners to join us next time when we'll be going further up. And further in. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. <laughs>